Amen. Uh, So I want to begin with a recap, because if you've been here for a while, we've been in Proverbs for a while. Uh, So where we've been so far, we spent quite a bit of time in the first nine chapters, the poems that Solomon sent out and directing his sons for life and the uh, potential kingship. Uh, And then we've been focusing on last week and this week, uh, really the entire book is centered around two paths, the path to life, which is filled with righteousness and wisdom, and uprightness, and blamelessness, and, and uh, prudence, and, and sense, and fear of the Lord. And it is exemplified by Lady Wisdom. And then you've got the path to death that is described and defined by wickedness, and rebellion, and foolishness, and scoffing, and is exemplified by Lady Folly. How appropriate that this book who is presented two paths before these sons, finishes in Proverbs 31 with the woman who exemplifies the path to life, the mother that plays a role in these these young men's lives. And so on a Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day, by the way. But this, this great ideal of walking in the path of righteousness into life, godly mothers, and as Jesse said, godly spiritual mothers are essential to this providing the care and nurture and admonition along the way. And so we will reach our climax in Proverbs there sometime in the near future. Um, But I want to talk about these two paths this morning. So we introduced the two paths uh, last week in the largest portion of the book. So from chapter 10 to chapter 30, this is the, the, the body of Proverbs, and uh, where we most as often associate the book with these individual proverbs that have typically two lines that either compare or contrast something. So we're focusing on the, the contrast between the path of life and the path of death. And this has been the same throughout all of scriptures. We talked about this before. From the very beginning in the garden, there's the promise for life and there's the consequence of death if you disobey. There have always been two paths. We see it first in Cain and Abel. The one brother chooses the path of death by killing his brother. The other brother, by being faithful, is given the the, the honor of of having a blood that remains all the way to Christ, as the the writer of of Hebrews tells us. So you've got one who, who chooses his own selfish way and dies. The other who is faithful in his fear of the Lord and lives. There are many more of these. Uh, Another one in, in the history of Israel is Esau and Jacob which turn into two nations, Edom and Israel. One that chooses the path of, of uh, selfishness and self-preservation. One, the other, God chooses to put his, his line through, that his people and ultimately the Son of God would be preserved. One a path of life and one a path of death. And ultimately, we see these two paths in Adam and in Christ. All of humanity is under one or the other. All of humanity is either under Adam and is dead or in Christ and lives. And so ultimately, when we look at these two paths, this is what we're seeing. The path of Adam to death and the path of Christ, which is life, in Christ. And so we're going to flesh that out some more this morning. And so when we look at these two paths, our emphasis is going to be Christian maturity. How do we see it? identified, exemplified, and what lessons can we learn from that? So why Christian maturity? Uh, Number one, this has been 
my pastoral aim since I came here, uh, the conviction of my heart, not because it's anything in and of myself, of myself there's not multiple of me, anything in and of myself, um, but because it came from Paul first. So I actually want to begin in the end of Colossians 1. When people ask me, what is your pastoral philosophy? What, what drives you? What, what motivates you? What's your, your goal? Here it is. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, uh, we're going to have a lot of cross-references, so you can keep, once we get into Proverbs, you can keep your Bibles open, or you can flip back and forth with me, uh, but the rest of the references will be on the screen. Him we proclaim, being Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Notice, him we proclaim. This is the, the pastoral charge. This is the, the, the call to every believer, and God's word is one of warning and one of teaching, With all wisdom. What does all wisdom result in? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. You want to know what wakes me up every morning and what drives me as a pastor is this. Why I'm preaching on this, why I preach and teach the way that I I do, because I want you to be mature in Christ. I want you to walk in wisdom. I want you to avoid trouble. I want you to find your comfort in him. Verse 29 explains how this is done. For this I toil. These are strong words in the Greek. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. This is pastoral ministry and this is Christian ministry. We don't bring any energy of our own. But we struggle because we love the body. Because we want to see other Christians preserved and unified, and presented blameless before their Savior. Amen. And the Christian life, growing in Christ, we use a theological term, sanctification, but sanctification is not mere moralism. And it's not behavioral improvement. It's not do these things so that God will be pleased with you. It's not clean yourself up on the outside and that makes you a good Christian. These are not works done for salvation, but these are working out of our salvation. This is the gospel promise of the new covenant. So when we think about the Christian life and walking down this path, I want you to see Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 as the lens with which we're going to look at the rest of uh, our text this morning. Ezekiel 36, if you're familiar, uh, it's the new covenant promise of the work that God will do within his people, changing hearts, changing minds. But notice what, what, where this, this promise culminates. He uh, talks about taking them out of the nations. He's going to gather them. He's going to sprinkle them clean. Uh, he's going to cleanse them. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. This is regeneration, new birth language, and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will give you my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So as we walk the Christian life, as we seek maturity, we're walking out of the new covenant reality. This new covenant in Christ, which God gives us, which God causes us to do. What a great comfort and encouragement that I don't have to figure out how to obey him on my own that I don't have to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, that he gives me everything needed. He gives me new heart. He, he, he cleanses me from my unrighteousness. He gives me his spirit, and he causes me. 
He teaches me. He teaches us how to walk. And so as we go through, remember this. This is not moralism. I am not telling you to walk better so that you are better. I am telling you that if you are in Christ, you walk because he enables you to. Amen. Uh, I love the contrast here that John Bunyan says. Well, probably one of the lines he's most famous for, but I love this. So here's the uh, tension between legalism and the gospel. John Bunyan says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. One more time, because that's so good. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that those words are true. That you have called us by your Son. You have set him in our place. You have redeemed us from the pit. And for up to us, no hands, no feet, there's nothing we could do We're stuck in the death of our own sin, but God, being rich in mercy. While we're still sinners, sent his son to walk in him, to walk in newness of life, and not just walk but run, and not just run but fly, because you have given us wings. And may we soar on those wings like eagles. May your people be majestic and pure because you have made us so and you have called us to glorify you in everything we say and do and may this time in your word this morning do that may it strengthen us and uplift us where needed and may it convict us and challenge us where needed may we strive all of us struggle in your strength to be preserved and matured that we may hear the blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you love us, you loved us first. And we walk because we love you and are grateful for what you've done in us through Christ, by the power of his spirit, and in his name we pray, amen. So as I mentioned last week, uh, because we're covering a lot of ground, covering chapters 11 through 13, we cannot cover every verse that mentions the two paths. Uh, We're going to select some, so these are more representative than they are comprehensive, Uh, meaning we're going to look at different aspects of Christian maturity. But what I want you to do is as you're reading, pay attention, meditate. Uh, I'm going to tell you we're going to cover a lot this morning. You're not going to be able to take notes on everything, and that's okay. But as we said last week, I want you to see the picture, not all the individual pieces. But what I also want you to do is when next time you go through Proverbs, and hopefully it's later today and and during the week, you're able to spend some time meditating on these. Do I desire these? Do I exemplify these? How do I grow in maturity? How do I glorify God in every day of my life? And so I want to give you uh, a lot of tools in a short amount of time, and so don't feel pressured to get everything down. I've written all the references in your outline for you, and feel free to go back to them later. So we're going to begin in chapter 11, verse 3. Uh, This is 
It's going to kind of set the tone for everything else. Here's the contrast between the straight and the crooked paths. Proverbs 11, verse 3. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Two Hebrew words here. For integrity, this means completeness. This means wholeness. Kind of the same way that perfection is, is used in the New Testament. Not to be perfect in all ways, but to be lacking nothing because you are in right relationship with the Lord. The, the wholeness, the completeness of the upright. The upright in Hebrew just means straight. So the wholeness, the completeness of the one who walks straight guides him. If you're on a journey, what kind of guide do you want? Our guide is what the Lord has done in us. We want straightness. We want wholeness. We want, we want completeness. Nothing in the world offers that. Because the alternative is the crookedness of the treacherous, and it, and it leads to destruction. A crooked guide is a guide who doesn't really know where they're going, stumbles over his own feet, and he's going to bump you into every tree and bush and curb along the way, and you're eventually going to get lost and ultimately dead. What is at stake here is the, the straight path that leads you where you're going versus the crooked path that, that leads to destruction. Uh, I love driving through mountains and up mountains. My favorite place to drive, Blue Ridge Parkway, and my wife will attest, she has to just hold on and close her eyes as, as we're driving up these, these mountains on the edge of cliffs. And I find it exhilarating, but it is highly stressful. Uh, and it is, it is treacherous because one wrong move, and most of them don't have guardrails, and it's a long way down. Uh, and that is not a joyful time for my wife. It's exciting for me. But that is not how you want your, your, your Christian life to go. You don't want to be on the edge of the cliff, jerking the, the, the steering wheel back and forth, white-knuckling it the whole way. It is much nicer to have a straight drive through the country and look at the mountains from a distance. That is the picture here. Do you want this, this crooked, treacherous way, or do you want the straight way? With the horizon in, in, in view, and the wicked path, it is crooked to navigate, and it results in crookedness. And so this contrast is going to be played out in the rest of everything else we're looking at. I want to look at just a couple examples. Verse 5. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The father, again, wants his son to walk in righteousness, to avoid wickedness. Son, I'm putting these two things before you. Righteousness will lead you and guide you. And it will keep your way straight, but the wicked, they fall, and they're destroyed. Verse 6, the righteousness of the upright delivers them. Uh, it's, in a, it's in an immature form, but delivers here could also be read salvation. Um, not saved eternally, but there's kind of saved circumstantially, just like uh, Israel coming out of Egypt. They were delivered. They were saved out of Egypt. The righteousness of the upright delivers them. It pulls them out. It saves them from, from trouble and, and destruction. But the treacherous are taken captive by their own lusts. The righteous path we know ultimately leads to salvation. But it does save you from being captive by your own lusts and your own desires. 
It is a, it is a path that is set before you, that is a, a path that is walked in Christ. It was walked um, for something other than to just please yourself, to be driven by your own lust. And you can almost hear the, the, the father imploring the son here. So this kind of sets up a, a definition of Christian maturity, and it's, and it's a long one because um, it's, not, it's not a simple concept. But Christian maturity is walking in the righteousness of Christ. And so in the terms of Proverbs, you're, you're guided on the straight path by what is pleasing to God. And the more you walk, the less you are misguided by the crookedness of sin nature, and it becomes more straight. So Christian maturity, essentially you're walking in Christ on the straight path, pleasing God, and he grows you and works in you along the way. And that's our, that's our aim, to walk in maturity, to walk humbly with our God. And so before we go any further, is this your desire? Does this exemplify your life? Do you, do you strive for maturity? Do you see the areas where you are immature and follow the conviction of the Holy Spirit and want to conform yourself to the image of Christ? Or are you content with immaturity? Are you content stumbling around like a drunken toddler? I was thinking about it this week. There's not much difference between walking, watching a toddler learn how to walk and watching a drunk guy at 3 a.m. It's kind of the same thing. They stumble around a couple, couple steps. They can't really hold themselves up, so they got to sit down for a moment. And then they get up, and then they stumble along. How many people live their Christian life like this and are content? How many people are, are content not being able to walk, let, let, alone, let alone run? And so that's why the image of being a child in the faith and being born again, we must be reborn in a spiritual sense, and we must learn to, to crawl again and walk again. But don't be content with, with crawling. Don't be content with, with stumbling from one step to the next, and i got to sit down for a while because it was really hard for me to put one foot in front of the other. Move on from milk to solid food. Don't be content in your, in your immaturity. And so I want you to look at some of these examples here. Uh, one of our first references, 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Paul kind of lays it out for a church that is very immature in a lot of ways. But he says this, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So our minds in conformity with what Christ has done in our hearts, which, which guide our actions to move on from milk to solid food, from immaturity to maturity. All right, let's continue on in Proverbs chapter 11. We're going to move a little quicker after this. Uh, and I, again, just want to give you some examples. Verse 19. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he pursues evil will die. Steadfast. We looked at this a few weeks ago, chapter 16, 6, I believe, where it is Christ's steadfastness. It is his faithfulness. And because of his faithfulness, because of his righteousness, we can live righteously. And because of his righteousness, we live. And so this, this promise that is given to the Son, whoever is steadfast in righteousness, we know that there is none of that apart from Christ. But in Christ, you will live. This is the, the, the promise of the one who walks down this path. If Christ puts you on this path, it is a path to life. And he will uphold you on that path. Verse 20, those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, 
Remember last week, we looked at all of this flows from the heart. How the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the mind thinks, and the actions respond. This crooked heart, the Lord hates. And we walk, our walk comes out of our heart. But those of blameless ways or walk are his delight. Think about that. If you were on the path to life, the Lord delights in you. He delights in you because you are found in his son. In Christ, our walk is one of the joy of the Lord. We respond in our joy because his joy is set on us. One more, thinking about this idea of life and the life coming out of this this path of righteousness. Verse 30, the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. We touched on this a while back, but the tree of life is is a theme throughout all of Scripture. It is found in the first chapters of the Bible. This tree of life that sustains Adam and Eve, and they were, it would sustain them forever if they continued to eat from it without eating of the tree of the knowledge of, the knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting, there is, a, there is the tree of life, but in Proverbs, there is a tree of life. So what is told to the reader here is, remember what Adam and Eve ate of, so they would continue to live now you have the opportunity to eat of. This is the, this, this path of, of righteousness. It's not the tree of life. But the promise is if you eat from a tree of life in this path of righteousness, that the end of the Bible, the tree of life is restored. And all of the nations who are united to Christ eat of its fruit. So walking in Christ now is a look back to the garden in man's perfect state and a look forward to glory in man's perfected state. And so every step of our Christian lives is a glimpse, a taste of the tree of life, which we will again eat of when Christ restores all things. All right, let's move on to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 3, No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. Remember Jesus' parable of the sower, the rocky soil, Why did it wither up and die? Because it had no root. No one is established by wickedness. This term established is a a building term. There is no foundation. There is nothing lasting. There is no root in wickedness. But the root of the righteous will never be moved. Maturity runs deep. It will never be moved. Why? Because its root is the righteous branch. But here's the problem with wickedness. No one is established by wickedness. Wickedness is not established. It's not static. It's always moving. It's always shifting. You can't count on it because it is blown back and forth as the culture changes and as your circumstances and your emotions change. If you feel like you're being tossed to and fro, maybe you're not rooted in the right things. Because if we chase after what the world does, we'll be chasing our tails. It's cute for a dog, but it's foolish for man. If we continue going after the things that are shifting and, and, and chasing or, and, um, and uh, moving and, and changing, how often are we going to be thrown off course? Verse 16. Again, this is 
briefly covering these. It's one of my favorites. 11.16. No, we're in 12.16, aren't we? Yeah. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Man, how much stress and drama would we avoid if we could just ignore an insult? <laughs> how often are we responding to and driven by the opinions of others? How often are our emotional urges or what people might think about us or what maybe they, they, they meant? I, I heard what they said, but I really know what they meant. How often are we made to be fools by defining ourselves by what other people say to us? The vexation of a fool is, is known at, at once. If someone says something to you that you don't like and you get out of character immediately, you are showing yourself to be foolish. And I'm saying that because I love you. Don't do it. Because ultimately, what can man do to us? What can man say to us? There's nothing of any ultimate circumstance that anyone can say to us. If we are in Christ, if we are on this path to righteousness, no one can take you off. No one can minimize you in the eyes of your, your Savior. But so often it feels like they could. All right, verse 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. So here's just a little piece of free advice. If you're wise, you won't have to tell people you're wise. Smart people don't have to convince anyone. It's evident to everyone. Typically, the people who are telling you how smart they are, how great they are, how wise they are, are not. And they're compensating for something. A prudent man conceals knowledge. What does it mean to conceal knowledge? I love Proverbs uh, 119.11 here. Proverbs 119.11. Psalm. Yeah, you're right. There is not 119 Proverbs. <laughs> Trey, up on the screen. Yeah. I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we conceal knowledge. Not that we hide it and we're, and, and we're greedy and we're, and, and we're storing it up for winter. But we hide it in our hearts. We, we conceal it for the appropriate time. Remember, we talked about knowledge is, is understanding things. Wisdom is, is rightly understanding it and knowing how to apply it. Prudence is putting it into application. So the prudence takes the wisdom, the word of God, that is stored in their heart for the right time and the right application. It is the right tool for the right job. And so it is stored up for the right time but it's not so with the fools. That's why Paul tells us to avoid foolish talk. How does the mature respond in those situations? We listen. We think. We weigh. We wait. And then we speak. Because this, this fool, he proclaims his folly. We live in a world, and uh, next time we go to these two paths, we're going to focus on foolishness. We live in a world that loves to proclaim its folly. Just listen to someone talk for 30 seconds. You will tell whether they are wise or a fool. Should not be so with the mature. Next one, verse 26. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Here is an essential fruit of maturity. You are to be a guide to others. 
We don't walk this walk alone. We don't walk it for ourselves alone. But the result of wisdom and maturity is to be a guide to your neighbor. Last week we looked at those who lead others astray. This is why church discipline is important. But on the other side, if you're mature and the Lord has given you confidence in him, and the Lord has taught you much as, you're, as you walk with him over the years, be a guide to others. This is discipleship. Follow me as I follow Christ. It has always been our model here. You've heard me say many times, if you're a new Christian, find someone who is further along, ask them, can I watch you? Can I follow you? If you've been a Christian for a while, find someone who is not as far along as you and, and, and take them with you. Be a guide that is what maturity looks like. Because in this race, in this, this walk, and we'll look at this picture later, but this is a marathon where everyone crosses the finish line. We're not just out for ourselves. The Christian walk is grabbing on to those who are before you and pulling along those who are behind you so that we finish well. Verse 28, And the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. This is why we walk in confidence. We are walking in newness of life. We are walking in Ezekiel 36. A God who has given us life, who has given us his spirit, and who causes us to walk in him. And the promise of the righteousness of Christ is that there is no death in him. Now this is an acorn form in the Old Testament. They understood a, a glimpse. They didn't have a fully developed doctrine of eternal life. But we see it in the oak tree form. We see all of God's plan of redemption, all of the fullness of Christ. And we know when we read this, in the path of Christ, righteousness is eternal life. And on his pathway, there is no death. Because no one can separate you from him. Amen. Let's continue on. Chapter 13, verse 6. Righteousness guards him who is whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. How is righteousness a guard? Well, when your way is upright, your way is straight, you can walk with this, this clear conscience, you can walk with confidence in Christ, you walk in maturity. How often has that saved you and guarded you from trouble? How many times has the conviction of the Holy Spirit kept you away from things that would have cost you very much? How often has the bringing to remembrance the word of God been a guard to you? I'm going to go do this, but wait. Here's, what God, here's where God's word directs me. How many times has the conviction of sin guarded us from great harm? This is the role of the Spirit in our lives. He is our comforter and our convictor who brings to remembrance the words of Christ that we might not sin against him. This is why it is important, going back to Psalm 119.11, that his word is hidden in our heart. Because that is our guard and also our guide. Verse 16. In everything the prudent acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. In everything. The prudent or the wise or the righteous walks, acts with eyes wide open in everything. Because the Bible provides insight for every area of life. I love the way John Calvin put this. He describes the word of God as, as spectacles. 
or glasses that we put on our eyes which, which improve our vision and allow us to see everything else in the world. That it turns what is, what, what is, what is hazy and unclear into what is clear and, and perceptible. This is what it means to meditate on God's word day and night. It doesn't mean you walk around with your, your Bible open and reading 24 hours a day. It means that you have spent so much time in your Bible. It means you have applied his word so much that it is constantly in the forefront of your thoughts. That you, that, that you meditate on it day and night. That you wake up and you think about how God's word applies to your breakfast. And you go throughout your day and you think about how God's word applies to that coworker who insulted you and you want to insult back. And how God's word applies when you get home and the kids are wretched little sinners and you are reminded that so are you. And in all things, the prudent acts with knowledge, taking this wisdom and applying it, but a fool, he flaunts his folly. Verse 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. There's another great principle. Wisdom is contagious. Here is the result of discipleship. You will guide others, and if, they walk, if, if you are wise and they walk with you long enough, guess what will happen? If you, are, if you are unwise and you walk with someone who's wise long enough, guess what will happen? This is how the disciples learned, right? This is how Jesus taught the disciples. They didn't sit in a classroom for 10 hours a day. They, they walked with him. His entire life was a classroom. When he cared for people, they were learning, watching, imitating when he served people, they were learning, watching, imitating. When he taught people, they were learning, watching, imitating. If you have been blessed to be around older, wise Christians, you have seen the growth in your life. Want to be mature? Walk with the wise, not the fools. You want to be mature? Find a veteran Christian. Seek out discipleship and ask for help. Ask for guidance Ask to just be a fly on the wall in their, their lives. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It is hard to grow in wisdom if you're only around people with all the same weaknesses that you have. It is hard, if not impossible, to grow in, in wisdom if you're not around wise people. Yes, there's wisdom in God's word, but he has created us for relationship and in, in, and, and for community in such a way that we bring each other to remembrance of, of God's word. I know so many people who read their, their Bibles all the time and have terrible interpretations of the scriptures. Because it has never been tested. Because they are afraid of anyone who might challenge their idea. And so they are the first ones in, in history with their hermeneutics. I have these conversations all the time. We must be around the wise and learn from the wise. All right, last verse in chapter 13. Verse 25. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. Let me give you a little key to this. This is not about food. Knowing that you have everything in Christ and your heavenly Father will supply all your needs leads to continual contentment. That's what this means. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. The mature knows how to control his appetite. And they're content with wherever God has them, whatever God gives them, 
As Paul says, I know how to be abound and I know how to be brought low. I have found the secret to contentment. Because I walk in the path of life. I have been united with Christ. The Father has given me all I need for life and godliness. That is my contentment. But before I came to Christ, my God was my belly and it was never satisfied. My hungers and my appetites for the things of the sinful world were insatiable. The mature is careful about what our appetites are, what we desire, what we hunger for. We should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not be driven by our bellies like the wicked. Let's move on to chapter 14, verse 2. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Remember, we spent an entire week on the fear of the Lord. We used Charles Bridges' definition of affectionate reverence. It is that fear of the Lord that establishes our walk. It is that fear of the Lord that causes us to walk in uprightness because we love him. Because he first loved us. It is our inner disposition, our heart that drives us to please him. And this walk is impossible without it. If you do not fear the the, the Lord, you will not walk with the Lord. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord. Verse 6. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for the man of understanding. Now, I know a lot of young Christians are saying, wait a second, knowledge is not easy. Knowledge is easy for the man of understanding. Many young Christians struggle to understand the Bible. But how many of us, when we first became Christians, struggled to understand the Bible? Every one of us. How did we become men of understanding? How did we become women of understanding? We read. We grow. We apply. We gain understanding. And what happens? It becomes more natural. It, becomes to, it begins to, to flow out of us. Our way begins to straighten. How many of you, as a young Christian, feel very crooked? Or maybe you're still a young Christian and you feel crooked. You feel like, all right, I'm correcting this way, but I'm, but, but I'm overcorrecting. Now i got to correct this way, and I'm overcorrecting again. And if someone was to follow you, they would get dizzy because you were from one side of the path to the other. But what happens the more time you spend in Scripture? You're, you begin to mature and your, your path, no, it will, it will always be a zigzag. None of us are walking perfectly straight, but it begins to become straighter. You begin to learn wisdom and discernment. You don't overcorrect on one side or, or the other. You learn to fix your eyes upon the finish line. You learn to walk with temperance and with prudence and with wisdom. This is how you become a man of understanding. It does not happen overnight. And this is the problem with a lot of immature believers. Is they think that that I should be mature already. I've been a Christian for six whole months. I have talked to Christians who have been Christians for six whole decades. And they are still trying to become mature. But here's the beauty of the walk. If you're on the path, God put you there. God will bring you to the end of it. And while you're on it, grow in maturity. Grow in his word. I love what Samuel Renahan says about this. He says, we all differ in the quantity of knowledge, but we're all given the same quality. 
Think about that. You may differ in quantity of knowledge. But as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, you have been given the mind of Christ. If you are in Christ, we all have the same quality of knowledge. This is the Christian life. You are growing in your degree of the mind of Christ that you have been given. Verse 7 is kind of an example of this. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Another sign of maturity, you avoid foolish people and foolish things. Who do you want to be around? The learner? The one who is always growing? The man who wants to be a man of understanding, wants to be a woman of understanding? Or the scoffer? Or the fool who loves to hear the babble of their own mouth? Verse 8, the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Discernment comes with maturity. It's taking wisdom and it's applying it to your choices along the way. If you're wise, you'll be able to discern your way and you won't easily be led astray. But the folly of fools is deceiving. They deceive themselves. Verse 12, There is a way that seems right to a man, worldly wisdom, but its end is the way to death. This also we grow in in maturity. We begin to recognize the things of the world. We begin to recognize the weakness of the things of man in eternity. We begin to recognize foolishness. Verse 15 of chapter 14. I love this one too. The simple believes Everything. Any of us met these people? If you have not met this person, you might be this person. The simple believes everything. Here's what we talked about early on in in Proverbs. If you don't fear the Lord, simpleness leads to foolishness. That is the default path. We are born on the wide way, the path to death and destruction. You can tell a lot about someone by how they take in, perceive, and apply information. We are told to test every spirit, to weigh things against the word of God. Simpleness often leads to foolishness. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. This prudence, this discernment, this maturity is thoughtfulness in every step. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This is also what mature people do. They look carefully how they walk. Gives thought to every step because they know that their enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 16 kind of complements this. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. That thoughtfulness is cautiousness. It is not recklessness. We are not people who, who overreact and who are careless. We think and we consider We are not like the fools who are driven by our urges. But even on the straight path, 
there are roots, and there are curbs, and there are snakes, and there are things that you have to watch out for. So we consider our steps. We are cautious, and we turn from evil. Because we know the Christian life is not a sprint, it is a marathon. Sometimes you are running, sometimes you are just getting one foot in front of the other, trying not to trip over your own two feet. But thankfully, he who began a good work in you will complete it. Chapter 15. A few verses here, and then we'll move to our application. Chapter 15, chapter 15 verse 14. The heart of a man who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feed on folly. The heart of a man who has understanding seeks knowledge. Again, this flows out of the heart, the inner disposition of the man. The mature develop and pray from a heart that seeks the knowledge of the Lord. The mature has a heart that, that, that loves Christ and, and loves his word. To feed on spiritual food, not folly like the fools. The mouth of fools feeds on folly. What does the righteous feed on? I love Jeremiah 15, 16. This will be up there, Trey. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Look at that. I found your words and I ate them. And they became to me a joy. Why? For Gives us purpose, for I am called by your name. If you are called by the name of the living God, if Jesus Christ has taken your name and written it in the Lamb's book of life, his word is sweet to you. It is a joy to you, because the Lord of hosts, the God of glory, has found his delight in you. He wants you to grow into the image of his son, because this is ultimately what Christian maturity is looking more like Christ. He redeemed us to himself and reconciled us to himself so that we might be like him. And because we couldn't do it in our own strength, he gives us his spirit to help us along. And because we couldn't reach the finish line on our own, the spirit preserves us. And because we can't perfect ourselves, he will one day perfect us. This is the promise of the Christian life. Verse 21, a couple more examples here. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. We walk straight ahead because our eyes are fixed on Christ. It keeps us from folly. The more you mature, the, easier, the more you become like those Clydesdales with the blinders on. You don't see the wickedness to the right or to the left. You look straight ahead. I have no eyes for that. I'm going to turn away from temptation, and your path becomes straighter and straighter. Verse 24, the path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. Thankfully, because of Christ's faithfulness, our walk is always upward. Even if it seems like you are crooked and wobbling from right to left, you are wobbling your way to glory. Every, foot you, every step you put in front of the other is a step forward, but is also a step upward. This is an encouragement, saints. Even though it is difficult, every foot in front of the other is one foot closer to glory. 
Last one, verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Take heart. We have a great high priest. We do not walk alone. He has walked before us, and because he has, he can stand for us. He hears the prayers of his people. Here's another lie that I want you to hear, and don't miss this. Maturity does not mean independence. That is a lie of the flesh. I've met so many people who think that they are mature Christians because they don't need anyone else. That is a lie. Maturity is actually a greater dependence upon the Lord and his grace, upon Christ our mediator, upon the flock he has given us for protection and instruction and worship. The Lord is far from the wicked. Here's the reality. The wicked have no access to him. There is no prayers to the high priest unless you are covered in his blood. But here's the other reality. They don't want it. If you don't care to pray, if you don't care that you have a great high priest, if you are content going around your life, you may not be his. But only those who cry out to him, who turn from the path of death and turn to the path of life, have access to him. And if they do, they always will. If you have access to him, you always will. All right, let's spend a couple moments on application here. So the majority of the uh, two paths are found in chapters 10 through 15. Most of you have a break in your Bibles after chapter 15. Uh, the emphasis is different. So that's why next time when we deal with the two paths, it's going to be chapters 16 through 30. Uh, so less examples, more, more chapters, and our emphasis will be on foolishness. So what pastoral application can I apply? Like how do we you know, kind of bring this together and put some, put, some, put some legs to it as we leave this place this morning? So I want you to remember that the Christian life is a walk, because God causes you to walk. Don't forget Ezekiel 36. Because if we think the walk is in our strength, if we think it's up to us to maintain it, if we think we put ourselves on the path in the first place, you are going to disappoint yourself every day of your life. You walk because he causes you to walk. To work out our salvation day after day, one foot in front of the other. But the other joy of the Christian walk is that you don't walk alone. Not only do you not walk on your own, but you don't walk alone. I love Hebrews 3 here. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. We spend a lot of time in, in Hebrews, and the purpose of the book of Hebrews is to show that Christ is greater than everything that came before. But the underlying purpose is to encourage the saints to perseverance. And how does this happen in the local body? How do we walk with one another? Verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. What do we do? How do we walk with one another? How do we be guides to one another? How do we guard one another? Exhort one another every day. Which days should you exhort one another? Which days should you encourage the saints? Every day ending in day. As long as today is the day, 
This is the day to encourage saints. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We don't know who will make it to the end. We don't know who is really in Christ. But for us, we spur one another on. We encourage one another on. We, we, we race together and we guard and guide each other away from sin. And those who make it to the end are the ones who, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This doesn't mean that, okay, I make it at the end, so now I share in Christ. What this means is, because you share in Christ, you will make it to the end. Those who make it to the end are the ones who prove that they are in Christ. Uh, I've used this often in providing a kind of vision for the church, but I love Philippians 1.27 as well. Paul, away from the church he loves. Uh, this is a shameless plug for our Philippian study uh, because it's been so much in my mind. I'm going to finish. Our last two texts are going to be from Philippians. But look at Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in such a way that you are known for the gospel. And the gospel permeates from you and, and you glorify Christ in your entire being so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. One of the most encouraging things of, that I have as a pastor, when I am not here during the week, I'm gone for a week, how often I hear, I was struggling and so-and-so encouraged me. I had a problem and so-and-so served me. This person built me up. This person encouraged me. What a blessing that is. That I can say whether I have come and see you or I'm absent. That I hear that you're standing in one spirit. That you're walking side by side for the faith of the gospel. Next, I want to go to Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about the end of his life as attaining the resurrection from the dead. There is no doubt in, in, in Paul's mind that he's going to be resurrected. But he wants to be clear what this Christian life is like. And he's saying, I have not gotten there yet. That's why in verse 12 of chapter 3 he says, not that I've already obtained this. He's still teaching fundamental doctrines here. Or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is the Christian life. I press on, not because it's mine or I make it my own, but because Christ has made me his, uh, his own. This is our motivation. This is our striving. The cross is not the finish line for believers. It is the starting line. Brothers, verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead... Look how Paul talks about the Christian life. I haven't arrived yet. There's no retirement for a Christian. My immaturity is behind me. I am striving forward to what lies ahead. And what lies ahead? The goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. For the believer, Christ is the starting line and the finish line. He's pressing on because he walks from Christ, in Christ, for Christ, to Christ. 
This is Paul's walking in the Christian life. Let those of us who are mature think this way. This is what maturity looks like. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained, or have attained, but the already is implied. We don't race because we're going to attain something that we don't attain already. This is the already not yet of the Christian life. Christ has made me his. I have attained righteousness that is stored up for me that is imperishable. And I am straining toward, striving toward, running toward, flying toward the inheritance that is already mine in him. Brothers, verse 17, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Everything we just saw in Proverbs, follow me as I follow Christ. Look to the mature. Walk with others who have been there longer. Lean on those who are more mature. Join in imitating me. Don't imitate the fools. Ultimately, we keep our eyes on Christ, but at the same time, we keep our eyes on those whose eyes are on Christ. Now here's the other path. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Remember that from Proverbs. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. How do we avoid the crooked, wide path? Avoid earthly things. Look to our heavenly citizenship, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the guarantor of what we have already and what we will have one day with him, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. You know what the other great encouragement is? We won't have to walk in this stupid body forever. We have a glorious body, so even if you are stumbling or rolling your your way through the Christian life, you will be given a glorious body one day. How? The power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The same power that rose him from the grave. The same power that reigns over all creation now enables us to walk. Do you think about that? Do you take comfort in that? The same power that rose him from the grave. And that reigns over all creation and will reign over all creation for all of eternity brought you to new life in Christ, and it is that power that strengthens you to walk. So when you are discouraged, remember that. So I want to close with one final illustration um, and just a final thought here. This walk is not easy. One of the greatest temptations of our walk is to compare ourselves to others. So even though we don't walk alone, we walk with one another, each walk is our own. Your walk is unique to how God has wired you, where God has put you, and how he's gifted you. Even though we don't walk alone, our walk is unique to us. So it's clear how we should walk, but how do we walk? Or or I mean, where do we walk? Every day we wake up. And remind ourselves of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. 
in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. That is what we do every day, one foot in front of the other. I love how Kent Hughes puts this. Uh, men, we, we went through the disciplines of a godly man a couple years ago. This is my favorite chapter. I've referenced it so many times. Uh, it's a chapter on perseverance. And here's what he says about the Christian walk. Here he calls it a race. He uses running analogies this whole chapter. But think about this when you are tempted to wonder, well, yeah, that, that may be good for you, pastor, because you're the one with the seminary degree, and you're the one who gets to preach every week. But what about me? What about all the difficulties I go through? What about the struggles? Or it's easy for that person because it looks easy. If every one of us knows the Christian life is not easy. But here's uh, how Kent Hughes describes this. I think it's a beautiful picture. He says, we all have a specific race mapped out for us. The course for each runner is unique. Its uniqueness is determined by God who charts it while factoring in who you are and who I am right now as to our giftedness, our background, our responsibilities, our age, our health, and most of all, who we are in Christ. Your race is like no one else's. It is marked out for you where you are a, whether you're a student, single, or a parent. Some races are relatively straight. Some are all turns. Some seem all uphill. Some are flat, a flat hiking path. They are not equal. All races are long, but some are longer. But the glory is, each of us, no exceptions, can finish the race set before us. I may not be able to run your course, and you may find mine impossible, but I can finish my race and you yours. Both of us can finish well if we choose and if we rely on him who is our strength and our God. You may be babies in the faith. You may be toddlers. You may be teenagers. You may be adults. But if you're in Christ, if your faith is in him, if you have died with him and risen to new life in him, you are in the race and you will finish the race. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you. We would never be able to walk if it were not for you. Apart from Christ standing in our place, we would still be dead. It would be the path of death for us, but praise be to God. He has saved us from ourselves. He has redeemed us from the pit and he has put us on the path to life everlasting. He strengthens us, he provides for us. Let him be our prize. Let us strive for the goal of running across the finish line. Whether he takes us home or he returns first, may we as his people be found mature and faithful because he is the faithful one who works in and through us for his glory. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.